Welcome back. I'm Brian, and this is my Bible study podcast, From Hevel to Eternity. Today we wrap up our study through all 12 books of the Minor Prophets. We put the finishing touches on the study with a geek-out session on the book of Malachi today. Last episode, we talked through the book. We gave an overview and we dove into some applications. If you missed it, I highly recommend checking out that episode before diving into this one. Through six Q&A-style discourses, we see the people were just going through the motions of worship. They were going through half-hearted religious activities where they were outright trying to cheat the system. And what this did is it created an environment where they were not faithful to their covenant with God. They questioned God's true character, and they did not worship or see the glory of God. Ultimately, it led to a 400-year absence of the word of God. Some tangible application to take from the book of Malachi, it's to fight against complacent worship. Because complacency in worship, it leads to going through the motions and to looking religious. But it ends up getting in the way of a real relationship with God and with others. This episode, we're kind of all over the place with topics. I want to touch on the structural differences between our English translations and the Hebrew layout of the book. I want to chat about the name Malachi and dive into the authorship discussion a little bit. We'll cover more of the similarities in the message between Malachi and Nehemiah chapters 10 and 13. We'll connect the dots between Malachi and my favorite topics, the covenant blessings and curses from Numbers and Deuteronomy. And then I want to end by connecting Malachi 1-2 with 1 John 4-10. I'm going to go into the episode not quite sure how long it's going to be. I think it's going to be short, but we're all going to be in for an adventure on this one. I pray that this episode helps us see the entire Bible as one thread pointing toward Jesus, whose faithful love led to his atoning sacrifice on the cross. So last episode, we briefly touched on one difference between the book of Malachi in the Hebrew Bible and the modern Christian English Bible translations that we might have. That in Hebrew, it's only three chapters, while in English, it has four. Before we get into this nerdy nuance, I just want to underline a few foundational points. There is not a theological difference between having three or four chapters. Both of the Hebrew and the English versions still contain the same 55 verses. They still say the same stuff, and they're still being translated against the same or very similar ancient codices. Codi, codexes, I'm going to be honest, I have no idea what the plural for codex is. Lastly, we need to remember that the original texts, and even the ancient Hebrew manuscripts, they do not have chapters and verses in them. So the original authors, they didn't note the chapters and the verses. Those were later editions, primarily by Christian translators, if my research is correct. And then most of the chapter and verse divisions, they were also adapted by Jewish scholars too, just kind of for easy bookkeeping. So this discussion is not about how people added or removed verses later on or that the original author of Malachi had one outline that was then transformed and morphed. This is purely a curiosity question, and because it's a question I had, I wanted to share. Alright, so that was a really long introduction for a very short answer. I'm not completely sure why the delta exists between the Hebrew and English. I was able to trace the division of Malachi into four chapters in English, 
back to initially taking the chapter layout that the Latin Vulgate had, which I guess had four chapters also. I don't know why the Hebrew scholars went a different direction and kept a different chapter verse format than the Latin Vulgate and the English translation. I guess they really thought that the last few verses of Malachi chapter 3, they were really part of the rest of the chapter, and they shouldn't be broken into a fourth chapter. By the way, I don't entirely disagree with them, but I can't trace it back concretely. I know that that's not a very complete answer, but I can swallow my pride and say, yeah, I'm not really sure on that one. The second difference has nothing to do with the structure of the book of Malachi itself at all. Instead, it has to do with the structure of the Hebrew Bible, or Jesus' Bible of that time, versus the structure of our modern Old Testament. The Hebrew Bible, or the Old Testament, contain these same books and the same texts, but the orders are a little different. The last book of the Hebrew Bible, according to Jewish textual tradition, is the book of Chronicles, which contains what we know as 1st and 2nd Chronicles. The last book of our Christian Old Testament is Malachi. They're different. So why did Chronicles get demoted to the middle of the crowd or Malachi get the caboose spot? Well, the answer is simple. The Hebrew Bible, or the Tanakh, is arranged into three categories. The Law or Torah, these are the five books of Moses. Then the Prophets, which for them includes the major and the minor prophets, the same as us. But it also has the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings thrown in there too. And then the last section of the Hebrew Bible is called the Writings. And it includes what we would call wisdom literature and poetry, like Psalms and Job. But it also has some books that we would call narrative texts like Ezra and Nehemiah, and Chronicles. The Christian Bible is broken into the first five books, which is the same, but then all of the narrative books, they're put together, then the wisdom literature, then the major prophets, and then lastly the oft-overlooked minor prophets. In the Christian Bible, the last prophetic book is also the last prophet in the timeline. The last passage of the Old Testament ends up expectantly waiting for Elijah, the messenger who would call God's people to repent, and who would also introduce the Messiah's arrival. This verse leads directly to the start of Matthew, where we get the genealogy of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, and John the Baptist, who calls the Israelites to repent before introducing Jesus. The Hebrew Bible, however, the last book is the book of Chronicles, but that doesn't relegate Malachi to a forgotten position in the middle of the Bible. Michael Radelnik has a good book out called The Messianic Hope, and in it, he does a study on how the Hebrew Bible's layout, it's really built messianically. In it, he notes that Malachi ends the middle section, the prophets, pointing forward to the Messiah. And then it's immediately followed by Psalm 1, which calls its readers to meditate on the Bible, meditate on the Torah. And then you get Second Chronicles at the end of the Hebrew Bible, which retells the story of the promised line of David in a way that sort of ends in a dot, dot, dot. It points forward toward the expectation of a coming Messiah. Radelnik writes that the point of the whole Tanakh, the whole Hebrew Bible, is to reveal Messiah from the promise of a seed who will crush the head of the serpents in Genesis 3.15 to the call for the Messianic king to rebuild the holy temple at the end of Second Chronicles. It's Messianic. So yes, the books are in a slightly different order, but both have the same Messianic expectations. Some people might raise some questions as to if Malachi is actually the author's name of this book. 
or if the book is actually anonymous. At one point, there may have been dispute, but most scholarship has coalesced around it being a proper name and not a common name. The central reason for some of the historical confusion is right in verse 1-1. An oracle, the word of Yahweh, to Israel by Malachi. In Hebrew, it's Masah Dabar Yehovah Yisrael Yad Malachi. The last word Malachi is the name of the prophet, and it means my messenger. It only shows up in this version, Malachi, one time in the entire Old Testament, right here in verse 1-1. But it's very, very close to a Hebrew word, Malach meaning a generic messenger, often translated as messenger or ambassador. And that word shows up 214 times in the Old Testament. Because of this, some early Greek translations and the Septuagint, they end up translating Malachi as a title, my messenger, and why some historical scholars believed that it was a common name for some anonymous messenger instead of a proper name. However, some key texts, a couple important Greek revisions, and the vast majority of modern scholars, they all believe it to be a proper name. According to Makomsky, proper names that link a common noun with the name of the Israelite god Yahweh in this manner, via the Hebrew construct form, they occur by the hundreds throughout the entire Old Testament. Additionally, the word Malachi here, it's thought by some scholars to be shorthand for Malachiah, which would mean messenger of the Lord, which would make it a fun play on words with one of the verses later in the book. Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant whom you desire. Behold, he comes, says Yahweh of armies. The word messenger there is that word malach. So the Lord, through Malachi, is prophesying of a coming Malach who would precede the coming of the Lord himself. In the end, Malachi is a proper name, meaning messenger of Yahweh. It's extremely fitting for a prophet, and that is exactly what he does, a messenger from the Lord. We touched briefly on the similarities between Malachi and the last few chapters of the book of Nehemiah last episode, some of which were taking place at the exact same location during the exact same time frame. Last episode, we really covered what was going on in Malachi, but what was really going on in the book of Nehemiah? Well, in Nehemiah chapter 10, the people were promising obedience to the covenant. Nehemiah 10.30 says, We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. The beginning of Nehemiah 10.31 says, And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. Then Nehemiah 10.35 and 36 say, We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit from every tree, year by year, to the house of the Lord, also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks. And then the end of Nehemiah 10.39 says, We will not neglect the house of our God. Then in Nehemiah chapter 13, we get an unpacking of some of what was actually taking place. And it was not keeping the promises of their mouths from Nehemiah chapter 10 we see that Malachi addresses the same hypocrisy between what was promised and how they actually lived. 
Some of the key concepts here were intermarrying with peoples that worshipped other false gods, disregarding the Sabbath completely, not giving God their first or their best, neglecting the house of God, specifically the priests neglecting it. Nehemiah's response to all of these shenanigans is in Nehemiah 13.25, and I love it. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. For the record, I vow never to take the Nehemiah approach if I have to confront an issue with anyone. And I don't advocate that approach to conflict resolution. But there you have it. He confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. All the Nehemiah verses were from the English Standard Version translation, by the way. One of the biggest connections made in the book of Malachi is to the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, books that relay the covenantal laws, provide priestly outlines, and then warn of blessings and curses for disobedience to God's covenant. There is also a little talk about the covenant blessings and curses specifically within the book of Malachi. Some of the blessings vocabulary that shows up, it includes people worshiping the Lord and the nations recognizing his name as great, which shows up in verses like Malachi 1.5. Your eyes will see and you will say Yahweh is great even beyond the border of Israel. Malachi 1.11, For from the rising of the sun even to the going down of the same, my name is great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name is great among the nations, says Yahweh of armies. There's this return language, like in Malachi 3.7, which ends, Return to me and I will return to you, says Yahweh of armies. When God talks about pouring out a blessing in Malachi 3 verses 10 and 11, he's referring to the covenantal blessings. And then of God's people being spared, delighted, and his people. In verses like Malachi 3.12, all nations shall call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land. Malachi 3.17, they shall be mine, says Yahweh of armies, my own possession in the day that I make, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then lastly, and maybe my favorite verse from all of Malachi, Malachi chapter 4 verse 2, but to you who fear my name shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in its wings. You will go out and leap like calves of the stall. Last episode, we talked about how the second discourse really focused on the priests of Israel, and they had perverted their responsibilities. Also about how some of the things that they were allowing, like the sacrifice of blind animals, those things were strictly prohibited in the book of Leviticus. The language used in that second dispute, Malachi chapter 1 verse 6 to Malachi chapter 2 verse 9, it's also very similar to language found in some other passages from those books. Numbers 6... Numbers 25 and Deuteronomy 33 all have similar styles and passages and vocabularies. In the verses Malachi, he uses vocabulary like priests and Levi, and those parallel the three Pentateuch passages who use priests Aaron and Aaron's sons, the Levites, and the priestly line. Blessings show up in all the passages. Covenant, atonement, descendants, peace, keeping guard and turning back are also words and phrases that are mirrored across those passages. Combined, the closing of those three Pentateuch passages state a similar message that God will bless the faithful. 
He will accept and be pleased with his people. And these are messages that we hear as we read through Malachi. There is a question found at the start of Malachi chapter 1 verse 2 that gets answered in the book of Malachi, and then it gets kind of smothered within the New Testament. In Malachi chapter 1 verse 2, God states, I have loved you. Yet his people ask him, how have you loved us? In the book of Malachi, we see God respond by his faithful covenantal love towards the Israelites. But then in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, we get a beautiful statement answering how God has fully loved his people. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So how has God loved us? He sent his son Jesus, who died on the cross for us as a sacrifice for our sins. And through faith in him, we receive salvation a right relationship with God. Thanks for listening. Unless otherwise noted, all Bible verses were from the World English Bible Translation, which is in the public domain. The Nehemiah verses were from the English Standard Version, ESV Translation, copyright 2001 by Crossway, a publishing ministry of Good News Publishers. By the way, because I am sure it was bugging everybody listening, according to the Google machine, the plural of codex is codices. So there. We're a full-service podcast over here. Next week, we will start a few one-off studies prior to diving into our next large Bible study, so be on the lookout for what that will be. Until next time, though, I love you all.